0: Let us turn to get to the the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. Isaiah 40, at verse 25. Let us give our attention to the word of God, the inspired and infallible and inerrant word of our God. "'To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal?' says the Holy One. "'Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. "'Who created all these? "'He who brings out the starry host one by one,' and calls them each by name because of his great power and mighty strength not one of them is missing why do you say o jacob and complain o israel my way is hidden from the lord my cause is disregarded by my god do you not know have you not heard the lord is the everlasting god the creator of the ends of the earth May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. In the late 1600s in southern France, a 14-year-old girl was brought before the authorities. She was charged with being a Huguenot, a French Protestant. Her name was Marie Durant. She was young, bright, attractive. She would have had a normal life, most likely, if uh, she would not have been charged in this way, probably would have gotten married and had a family, she was called upon by the authorities to abjure or reject her Huguenot faith in Christ. She refused. As a result, she was imprisoned in a tower by the sea with 38 other Huguenot women. She was there in that tower for the rest of her life, 38 more years dying at the age of 52. For 38 years, Marie continued to reject the call to recant her faith. In fact, tourists today who go and look at the prison in that tower see the single word resiste scratched on the wall by those women imprisoned there. One author writes about her example in these words, We do not understand the terrifying simplicity of a religious commitment which asks nothing of time and gets nothing from time. We can understand a religion which enhances time, but we cannot understand a faith which is not nourished by the temporal hope that tomorrow things will be better. To sit in a prison room with 30 others and to see the day change into night and summer into autumn to feel the slow systemic changes within one's flesh, the drying and wrinkling of the skin, the loss of muscle tone, the stiffening of the joints, to feel all this and still to persevere seems almost idiotic to a generation which has no capacity to wait and to endure. The ability to wait and endure. To wait on the Lord is something to which every Christian is called. And here in Isaiah 40, we have a great promise of God set before us concerning this. We're told, but those who hope in the Lord or who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. It's clear that Marie Durant and her fellow martyrs knew the blessedness of this promise. And it's important that you and I understand and enter into this promise of God as well. Consider with me, first of all, this promise of renewing strength is for those who are weary. A promise for those who are weary and weak. Verse 29 says, he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Isaiah prophesied to the nation of Judah during a period of great difficulty and national hardship and stress. The nation, the great nation of Assyria to the north and west was, to to the north and east was a constant threat to Judah's peace and security. It's hard to imagine what it would have been like to wake up every day and not sure whether you might see on the horizon enemy soldiers coming to attack you. And so chapter 40 begins with these words from God, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And there's this proclamation to prepare the way of the Lord. The glory of the Lord would be revealed. But the problem was that the comfort prophesied by Isaiah would not be immediately evident. The fulfillment of this was in Jesus' coming. Hundreds of years after Isaiah spoke and prophesied these words, Jesus Christ would come, but not immediately. And in their waiting and in their weariness and difficulty and hardship, God's people were asking the question of verse 27. They were saying, My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. They felt that God had abandoned them, that somehow God didn't see or he didn't care about their distress, that he failed to answer their prayers for his help. God's promise of renewing strength is for the weary, and it's given in this very context. It answers the question that naturally rises in our minds, is my way, is my life somehow hidden From God? Does he not see? Does my God not regard my cause? There are times in the life of every believer when he or she is especially weary, when the difficulties may seem overwhelming. There are times in our pilgrim journey in this life when our way becomes so beset with difficulty that we're tempted to cry out with this same complaint, my way is hidden from the Lord. Asaph, who wrote some of the Psalms, certainly knew and experienced this. In Psalm 73, he tells us that his foot had almost slipped. The problem, he was looking around and saying, the wicked, those who don't know God, seem to be doing very well. They're wealthy." They're healthy, their children are all happy, everything's going well with their lives, and my life isn't that way. And he says that uh, in vain he has kept his heart pure, in vain he's washed his hands in innocence. In other words, he's saying, walking with God seems to be useless. All day long I have been plagued, I've been punished every morning when he saw the wicked. But then... He went into the temple of God, and as he beheld the glory of God, he realized how wrong he was. It's not unusual for us to feel that way. Even the Apostle Paul could write in 2 Corinthians 1, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. There's the Apostle Paul with that despair even about life. So the promise of renewing strength is for those who are weary. And I wonder if you find yourself in some way weary this morning and aware of how weak you are. Many, There are many ways in which we become weary, maybe weary of a difficulty that never seems to end, that goes on and on with no prospect for things to change. Maybe weary of waiting on God for an answer to prayer in some way or weary of a particular battle with some temptation in your life, some area that you've wrestled with. Maybe you felt this complaint of, of verse 27, rising in your heart, my way is hidden from the Lord. Then we must take this promise as the divine remedy in our weariness and in our weakness. And that brings us to our second point. What is the content of this promise given by God? The content is renewing strength in the midst of weariness. The promise of renewing strength strength, God's power in the midst of weariness. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. And then there are these amazing metaphors. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. This is an astounding promise of supernatural strength, the ability to persevere in hardship by God's grace To run in the midst of circumstances that would normally make us weary. To keep walking when we would naturally faint. The idea of soaring on eagle's wings gives the sense of something beyond what's natural to us. We don't normally fly. We're creatures of the earth. We walk. At best, we run. But God says, my strength enables you to fly. It's something clearly given by God. And then there's this contrast set up in verse 30. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. What comes to mind when we think of young men? Strength, right? The vigor of youth. Young men are the ones who play in the final four, right? And old men are the ones who sit on the couch and watch them play. You know, that's how life works. The young men are the ones who are strong and go out there and can do it. But verse 30 is painting the picture of the ultimate failure and inadequacy of human strength. Even young men ultimately stumble and fall. Even young men grow weary and faint. Everyone was shocked at the sad story on the news the other week about the 16-year-old high school basketball star who made the winning basket at the end of one of the big games at the end of the year, and then 30 seconds afterwards collapsed on the gym floor, and departed from this life immediately. Turns out he had an enlarged heart. And no one expects that. The whole stands were just in stunned awe. If you saw it on the news, no one expects a 16-year-old, strong, young person to collapse like that. And so the contrast comes out, even, even yous grow tired and weary. But in contrast to that, amazingly, those who wait on the Lord will renew... Their strength. Natural strength will come to an end, but the one who waits on the Lord will experience God's supernatural power. Listen to another verse or two from Isaiah 41 and some of the ways that the prophet goes on to describe this very thing. And in Isaiah 41, verse 10, the Lord says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Or later on in verse 18, he says, I will make rivers flow on barren heights. The idea is of this barren, waterless height. And God says, I will make rivers flow there. That's another analogy for God's power, God's strength. Or in chapter 43, verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you you could just bring your into your mind a tsunami even sweeping over and god saying i will be with you i will give you strength he says when you walk through the fire you will not be burned the flames will not set you ablaze no matter what disaster might befall for the one who waits on the lord for the one in jesus christ trusting in him god gives renewing strength what is the content of this promise then It is this, in long-suffering, in circumstances when it feels as if your way is hidden from God, in those very times, God gives strength. He gives persevering grace and enabling. He gives power to keep going and not to faint and to glorify and trust in Jesus Christ through those kinds of times. That's the content of what God promises. Well, let's then thirdly look at the call to enter into this promise by waiting on the Lord. The call to enter in and receive this promise through waiting on the Lord. And we want to break this down into the two phrases, waiting on the Lord. Let's look at the Lord. We need to have our eyes opened to who the Lord is and what he has done for us in Christ. God is this great, mighty, Powerful God, holy and righteous, but also he has drawn near through Jesus Christ and invites us to trust in him and know him. And to learn to wait on the Lord in this way, we must be seeing who God is. And this is the really the main thrust of Isaiah 40, declaring who God is, especially in his greatness, that we can trust in him. Isaiah 40 is like a powerful lens that focuses us in on the true picture of God. It's like if you look up at the moon at night, and you've often, I'm sure, seen the full moon, and it's this yellow glowing orb in the sky. But if you took a telescope, even one that's not that strong, and looked at the moon, you see craters and mountains and valleys. The the details of the lunar surface are very evident. And that's what God's Word does. It focuses in like a telescope, showing us the reality of, of God's greatness and his love. Isaiah is an overview of that. chapter begins with this call of comfort and that the glory of God will be revealed and that the, a voice cries out and Isaiah cries out this word from God and in verses 9 through 11, there's this very familiar refrain about the good tidings. He says, uh, Go up on a mountain. Lift up your voice with a shout and say, Behold your God. Here is your God. Now, how is that God described? Verse 10. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. So it's a picture of sovereignty. But then, verse 11, right next to that, he tends his flock like a shepherd and gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. The sovereign Lord comes but he is also a tender shepherd of our soul. I hope you realize that Isaiah is preaching the gospel in advance. He's looking forward to the glory of the Lord being revealed in Jesus Christ, the sovereign God, the Son of God coming with power, and yet he came in tenderness, in humility, in lowliness, caring for his sheep, calling all who are weary and heavy laden To find their rest in Him. This is the picture that Isaiah paints for us. And then, after this summary of God, the sovereign one, and yet the shepherd, Isaiah begins to unfold these comparisons. The middle part of Isaiah is full of this series of five major comparisons. The question is if you want to really know what God is like, what would you compare Him to? And essentially, the Lord is saying, You can't compare me to anything. Everything falls absolutely short when you are trying to compare something to God. But nevertheless, we have these. And really, they're they're five of the the main things that we would think of as, as being great in terms of what we think of as great on the earth. In verses 12 through 14, God is compared to creation. And it says in verse 12, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Just you think of the waters of the sea and you know how in your hand you can keep some water if you, if you hold a little bit in the palm of your hand. God has measured the waters in the, in the hollow of his hand, that little part of the hand that water could stand in. And, and that's how great God is compared to the sea. Or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens, kind of like the hands that we would use to measure a horse. I think horses are still measured by hands. But that's how God measures the heavens. I think not long ago, the newest galaxy that was discovered was found to be 14 billion light years away from us. Now, our mind just can't comprehend that. But just think of light. You high school students all know light, 186,000 miles per second, right? Pretty fast. Think of light going that fast for 14 billion years. And you would finally get there. That is a distance I can't even begin to comprehend. The Bible says God marks off the heavens with his hands, you know, just like a couple of his hands, and that's 14 billion light years. God is greater than the heavens. Or verses 15 to 17, the second comparison is to nations. The nations of the earth. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket, they are regarded as dust on the scales. Now, it's not saying that God doesn't care and have compassion on the nations. No, God has sent forth the gospel through Christ and to be declared to the world. In terms of comparison to God, the nations of this world, the nations that we might think of as great, think of all the nations got together, how wonderful that would be. And and yet, to God, they are like a drop in the bucket. Or verses 18 to 20, the third comparison is the idols of this world To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? And it goes on to describe an idol being made, an idol that craftsmen would make. And so it's comparing God to the ancient idols, but we could compare him to the modern idols as well, the gods of materialism, the gods of godless science or human ability or resources or human strength, any, any modern idol, ancient or modern as well. God is greater than any idol. Or there's the fourth comparison, which is in the realm of the people and the rulers of the earth in verses 21 to 24. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. Verse 23, he brings princes to naught and reduces the wor- rulers of this world to nothing. The Qaddafi's of this world... The presidents of this world, the kings of this world, every ruler of this world is like nothing compared to God. Certainly in human ways, they're great, but compared to God, no. He just brings them to naught. He reduces them to nothing if that's his will. And then the final comparison is God to the heavens in verses 25 and 26. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, Who created all these? Who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name? Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one is missing. So there we have it. All the stars, 100 billion galaxies, each with an estimated 100 billion stars. You can do the math on that. I think there are 22 zeros. That exceeds even the national debt. How do you like that? That number is getting pretty big. A One with 22 zeros after it. That's how many stars approximately there are. And God has called them each by name. Because of him, not one is missing. That's how great God is. This is nothing to him. He calls them each by name. And so to summarize it all, Isaiah says, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding No one can fathom. So if you're going to wait on the Lord, this is the Lord who is the object of our faith. He is not some weak God. This is the God who is supreme. Nothing surprises him, nothing is beyond his power and will. He is accomplishing all his holy will on this earth. And verse 28 really is a rebuke to our slowness to believe God's word that we would, that the verse would almost shame us out of our unbelief in looking to the greatness and the glory of God. He is beyond compare, and yet the same chapter speaks of him as a tender shepherd of his lambs. That's the God that we have to wait upon. And then we come to the second part of that phrase and ask, what does it mean to wait on the Lord? To wait or to trust or to hope means that We are convinced of who he is, that we patiently trust in him to act on our behalf in his time and in his way. Let me just say that once more. To wait on the Lord is to patiently trust in him to act on our behalf in his time and in his way. It means to hope in the Lord in such a way that even when he delays, we do not turn aside to other help or to the idols of this life. Well, that's no easy task, is it? It's really a fight of faith. And sometimes it's especially hard in our life and in our experience. It involves an active calling upon the Lord in prayer and seeking him. It means believing God's word of promise even when we don't understand his ways and we will not always understand what God is doing. That's why the verse says, "And his understanding, no one can fathom. I can't explain why Japan and people there suffered the earthquake. That's way beyond me. We do know that God identified with the brokenness and suffering of this life by sending Jesus Christ, but we don't understand why natural disasters happen when and where they do. We don't understand. I can't say if some disaster overtakes one of you this week why God would do that. It's beyond us. It is a fight of faith. It means believing God's word of promise even when we don't understand his ways. It means trusting that God is both sovereign and loving. Did you used to pray that prayer when you were a kid? God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. You know, those, that's a great phrase. God is great. God is good. God is sovereign and loving both. We need to hold fast to that by faith in Jesus Christ. And in the words of Romans 8, 31, what then shall we say in response to this? The gospel being presented. What shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? That is a reality that is true for every believer every moment of his life. No matter how dark things are, no matter how bad life gets, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, freely give us all things? To wait on the Lord in faith means to see God in his greatness, to see your own sin and need, and to trust the promise of gospel, to rest in Jesus Christ and then have this assurance that God is for you and that he is with you even when your way may be very hard. Well, let's conclude with a word of application to us then. And the question is this, how is God calling you to wait on him at this point in your life? Or another way to ask that is, what do you need to turn away from in your life that you are tending to focus on or to find your joy in or to trust in instead of focusing on your great and loving God? What do you need to turn away from You might ask yourself, what do I find myself always thinking about? What is it in life that enamors you so much? What do you daydream about? Maybe a particular problem in your life. Maybe a specific idol of the heart. Maybe it's your focus on pleasure or comfort or achievement or money or things or your appearance. Or maybe your focus is on people around you wanting them to approve of you or longing to be loved by someone or something like that. Or maybe you're overwhelmed by your failures or your past sins or how you've been deeply wronged by someone in the past and you're just fixated on that and you dwell on it all the time. You see, it's very easy to focus on any of these kinds of things. And those are the things that take our focus off of the Lord. But the Lord calls us to wait upon him to fix our trust on Christ alone as he's held out in the gospel. We had a hawk land on our bird feeder the other week, and I ran and got my camera to take a picture of it. But every time I snapped a shot, the camera ended up focusing on the window screen there. So the pictures really weren't any good. The hawk was blurry The screen looked really good, though. It was very much in sharp focus. Waiting on the Lord is like focusing on the hawk and not on the screen. The screen is like the things of this life. The screen is always going to be there, the cares and pleasures of this life. But God's word enables us to focus beyond the screen on the living God, the incomparable God the God of our Lord Jesus Christ who sent Jesus to die and to rise again that we might have eternal life in him. That's eternal life, which is to know Jesus Christ now and to walk with him and delight in him and to know his assurance of his presence with us now. For 38 years, Marie Durant refused to recant her faith. And she died there in that prison tower She was looking beyond the walls to her faithful and loving Savior, Jesus Christ. I doubt very much that any of us will have to spend our lives locked in a tower for the sake of Christ. But whatever God may bring into your life, whether good or ill, may you learn to patiently wait upon the Lord. Father, we ask that you would build this grace into our lives. For some who might be here this morning who have never trusted Jesus Christ, may the reality of the living Savior, Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all, may his gospel be made alive in their hearts and minds, that they would see their need and their sin, and that they would cry out to you and come to faith in Christ. And we pray for all of us who are walking the walk of faith, and who stumble many times. We pray that you would pour out grace into our lives by your Spirit to learn, to learn more deeply, to walk by faith. We pray that you would pour out the love of Jesus Christ into our hearts, that we would be lifted up with rejoicing in him, no matter what the difficulty or hardship you may bring. And may it be to your honor and glory. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.